Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Today on Untold Stories, we're going back to our roots to tell the story of the Silk Road, to tell the story of the agent Karl Mark Force, one of the lead investigators to take down Dread Pirate Roberts, a.k.a. Ross Ulbricht, who ended up after the takedown stealing millions and millions of dollars, blackmailing it from Ross as an agent of the FBI, and then tried to launder those Bitcoins for himself on a gold, silver Bitcoin website called Gold, Silver, Bitcoin by trying to become the chief compliance officer of said site by emailing the CEO of said site, Justin O'Connell. Justin O'Connell is also a Forbes contributor and has been involved in the space for a very, very long time, going back as early as as me, I think, in 2012, 2013. We talked about the story. We talked about the origins of the Silk Road. We talked about COVID-19. We talked about what went on in the early days of Bitcoin as it relates to Silk Road. Why was Silk Road the elephant in the room and something that early Bitcoiners had to come to terms with in order for them, I should say us, we had to come to terms with knowing that it was there and how important it was to the early development of Bitcoin, Silk Road. We talked about that today and how we can't ignore things like this and how it actually impacted the war on drugs. This was a great episode. Justin is very well-spoken, very calm and relaxing. I like this episode because it was very mellow. You'll enjoy it. I love you guys, and I'll talk to you just in a minute. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash charlie it's such an easy card to use you get the card in the mail you download the bitpay app you put bitcoin on the app and when you want to send bitcoin from the app into your debit card it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered it's really so easy you almost wonder like why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launch. well it was very difficult to do in fact i actually tried to launch my own debit card but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees, and I don't like that. So check it out, bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. Over the years, a lot of companies have tried doing crypto social networking. But the problem is that there are a lot of really good social networking apps already out there, like Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat. How do we build a social network that's perfect for crypto? Well, I want to talk about Pepo. Pepo is an amazing social media app that's built for the crypto community. 
What's really cool about it is that you can get rewarded for uploading and putting out good content, and you can also reward with crypto people who put up content that you really, really like. It's fast and simple, and it's the first crypto-powered app to be approved by the Apple and Google app stores. You can find me on Pepo right now at Charlie Shrem, the same handle as my Twitter, and I'm going to be posting interviews, travel videos, and more. So make sure you check out Pepo. It's super cool. Pepo.com. Enjoy it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today on the show, I have Justin O'Connell. Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Charlie, for having me. Justin, so I'll tell you, I'll tell you like the backstory about how all this kind of came to be. So I remember sitting one day in the in the prison library and the Wall Street Journal and New York Times and everything came later like it would there was like a delay i think it was USA today was the only paper that would come same day for some re- weird reason Wall Street Journal New York Times other papers take like weeks and i remember sitting in the prison library one day and literally um, this was like many, many months in. So I've kind of like resigned myself to just living the life in there and not really talking about crypto much anymore, just living my life in there. That's a whole nother story for another time. Anyway, so one day, one of my acquaintances or friends or whatever walks in and he's like, Charlie, did you hear about the, the Silk Road thing? And I was like, yeah, yeah, this is, you know, already a year or two ago. Everyone's in jail. We're all doing our, it's already like over. And he's like, no, 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 the, the FBI agent, you know, was was laundering all the Bitcoins from Silk Road. I was like, what are you fucking talking about? And I read and I get he hands me the article and I read the whole story with Karl Mark Force. And I'm like, are you is this real life? This whole story of how, you know, the agent involved in the takedown who was involved in not only Ross's case, but also my case. Uh, ended up stealing Bitcoin from the case, doing a lot of other really freaking shady things, gets sentenced to jail, and then no judge decides to open up any of the cases that he was involved in. I mean, it's kind of crazy, right? Yeah, and I actually spoke with uh, Ivan Bates, who was um, Karl Mark Forrest's lawyer when he was uh, tried for kind of laundering money away from the Silk Road. And he said that, uh, you know, he in his opinion, that the government in a lot of these cases has a lot of evidence that the public ends up not knowing about. And he wasn't really sure the connection. But over the years, there's been an increasingly vocal movement to have some of these cases reopened, especially Ross's, because of the DEA's conduct. Yeah. A lot of people think that down the road, Ross will have his case looked at by whether it's a president or friendly, you know, friendly senators or governors and congress congressmen. Um, do you think that would, that's the case? So like my position on this is that, uh, like I did a lot of research on the Silk Road while it was online and the vast majority of the the uh, buying and selling done on that was in cannabis. I think that like drugs in this country are, is an interesting, uh, discussion to have 
Like I personally have experience with cannabis and I, I have to say that I think it is pretty addicting in many ways. But with that said, I think uh, when you have El Chapo getting one life sentence based on his like history of violence and like the, the destruction of two societies really that he's played a part in and Ross has two life sentences, you have to stop and pause for a moment and wonder why that might be. Personally, like I think that uh, Ross's sentence is like so overboard that I mean it's embarrassing really for for I guess the state of New York. I agree. The whether or not you know anything about the case, if you look at it from a comparison perspective, uh, you're right. It does give you pause, right? It makes you think and say, what really kind of went on here? Okay, so let's let's kind of like so what we just did is almost like a a prologue of the end of the story. So let's go back. You found yourself. Um, so so let's go back all these years. You uh, the year is 2013. 2000 it was 2013, and you were running a company called Gold Silver Bitcoin, and a lot of people to go in and out of of crypto or Bitcoin at the time because there there was no crypto, um, and a lot of people to go Bitcoin to silver, and I'm assuming other precious metals uh, back and forth into Bitcoin. And and I re I remember you were, you were definitely one of the the largest at the time. I, I only remember one or two other companies. I know Coinable was one of them um, that did uh, what you did. And you got a funky email from Carl Force, and 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 I'd like for you to tell the story. But the question I have for you before you do is, you had you what type of knowledge did you have of Silk Road? up until the point where you got that email from him um, to an extent that what knowledge did all early Bitcoin OGs have of Silk Road and what was the belief or understanding of it in those years? Well, when I first entered into the space, Trace Mayer took me aside at a Freedom Fest in 2012 and shook me. Uh, we knew each other from gold and silver industry. And he said, like, if you don't get into Bitcoin, it's going to be like a big mistake uh, for you. And actually, at that time, I was working at a at a gold and silver precious metals retailer in San Diego, and one of our customers was Jay Shore, the founder oh, yeah, of Coinable. Jay Coinable, yeah. And uh, he was uh, he purchased um, metals from us that he was selling for Bitcoin. And man, this must have been in like 2011. And uh, ultimately, as as you may know, uh, I believe Jay kind of disappeared, um, and that company hasn't been. Uh, around for quite a while, but that's actually a whole other interesting story. But Jay used to come in and buy uh, metals from us. When I entered into the crypto space in 2012, I mainly worked in it as a writer. So I was researching all sorts of topics, Silk Road being one. And back in those days, Bitcoin was a heavily like libertarian leaning type of uh, movement. I know probably a lot of uh, quote anarcho-capitalists were uh, also in the space at that time. And their opinion of the Silk Road was that um, it was a that well they're oftentimes free market advocates and they saw the Silk Road as a kind of um, result of free markets on the tour and uh, generally speaking people thought that you should be able to buy and sell as long as you weren't doing harm to others that was in uh, as Ross's family makes clear these days in the terms of use of Silk Road that you weren't supposed to knowingly do damage to other people. And that every, all transactions were meant to be voluntary. And so people generally thought, uh, I think in Bitcoin at that time, that that you know was just simply a result of there being free markets. And uh, that, that's kind of what people thought at that time. I remember when, when I had to tell the judge this, um, I remember, I think I had summed it up 
unscripted at the time saying, um, I knew about it, but I don't think I cared enough. And I think that definitely uh, is the same mentality that a lot of um, early Bitcoin people had uh, going back the early days because maybe there was some ignorance or maybe we didn't know the extent of the, the really negative stuff that was going on Silk Road. But it was understood that Silk Road was doing was allowing for this like social experiment for voluntary transactions like an eBay. Um, but knowing that, yes, it's an experiment, a, a social you know, a social experiment that could that could change everything. But I guess personally, as a 21 year old kid or whatever, I was naive thinking that you could change the social norm or change the world. And I'd like you to tell me what you think on this um, with by by breaking the law. I think that it becomes quite look, I've been in business for myself since 2012. And I think that I've come across a lot of, uh, of people who I think are less than like ethically um, motivated. And I find that when you create situations and that they're able to exploit, like let's say creating tokens and selling them for, you know, Bitcoins or Ethereum and, and based on an idea of vaporware, that a lot of people will take advantage of that. And I think that Silk Road's kind of the same story. Like I think Ross too uh, has commented on this, that like he has sort of a utopic vision and he created this technology that would allow people to buy and sell without restriction, most of which was cannabis, by the way, which is I'm here in California. And right now it's like the only, you know, we're right in the middle of a lockdown. Oh, I just ordered my, I'm a PTSD medical marijuana patient. I just ordered my delivery just now, actually. And here in California, they're like one of the only small businesses open other than uh, liquor stores. And I think uh, when you create these technologies or these platforms that they could easily be used for, I mean, evil things, quite frankly, by others. You're very well spoken, by the way. And so I'm going to check out your podcast after. What's it called? Uh, you know, so I'm running a podcast on, uh, there's goldsilverbitcoin.com and uh, cryptographic asset, I think is a good one. Um, I I really That's the uh, one I was checking out earlier. Yeah, I'm, I'm working with a lot of interesting people. I like just interviewed, uh, I guess, Muneeb of uh, Block Stack, right? And yes, really interesting yes, yes. stuff. Trying to interview Bitcoiners, people who are in Bitcoin. And you know what, Charlie? I think right now with uh, kind of the uncertainty in the economy right now, as uh, all small businesses across the country, or at least in big states, have been shut down, um, that that kind of Bitcoin, early Bitcoin mentality might be coming back into style soon. Do you really think so? I, I think that at least in our space that that the Bitcoiners are really going to have their moment. I mean, in the Genesis block, Chancellor on brink of second bailouts. And right now we're talking about unlimited quantitative easing in the United States. The uh, ECB said that there's no limit uh, that they'll go to to save the euro. And uh, the BOE too has said similar things. So Yeah, it's kind of crazy, right? We're in uncertain. We're living now. Yeah, we're in uncertain times, certainly, but I think that uh, at least uh, for those of us that have been in this space for a while, that things were already kind of like shifting back to Bitcoin after the Ethereum um, ICO craze, really. And I think that now with uh, the uncertainty economically, that things will only swing back towards that pendulum further. You're also a Forbes contributor, and I spent... um a few hours this morning reading a bunch of your articles. I really enjoyed the one you did with uh, Jed from from Stellar. Uh, that was that was a good one. You've been writing for a very long time. How did it all kind of come to be? Was were you just kind of 
into Bitcoin, but until you were thrust into a kind of weird situation, did you jump into writing and being more involved or were you already? Um, tell us about Silk Road as well, because most people don't really know much about it. They don't really know what was what was it about. And by the way, I, I just want to make one little point. That case you made about cannabis, I, I have data to back that up. And I used that in my case to help me get a little bit of a better sentence. And and I have to go into the notes, but there was agreement on the government side, I think. I have to double check that this was the case that at least in the, in the beginning, uh, Silk Road was a lot more cannabis than it was at least when it was uh, shut down. Yeah. So when it comes to writing, I think uh, yeah, I graduated college uh, right in, in 2009. And I had to turn straight to the internet because all of the media reports were saying that there weren't jobs out there. So I thought, you know, this internet seems like a really big thing. I'm going to kind of invest in that and see what I'm able to do. From there, I started learning how to use WordPress, et cetera. And uh, I, uh, writing, yeah, I think that um, that was really the, the low-hanging fruit for me to enter into the uh, crypto space. There were publications like CCN at that time and, and Coindesk at that time was really small. And I reached out to these publications and they were interested in publishing content. So I started working with them and really kind of starts with the WordPress though. And I, I started tooling around with websites, having blogs in the, in the uh, gold and silver space at the time, which is an interesting space to this day too, because it's so old fashioned that it really doesn't, it's like 10 years behind Bitcoin, for instance, in terms of like social media use, internet, um, leveraging and, uh, from there, it was just like one blog after another, trying to like figure out what I was interested in. And, you know, okay, this is an interesting story. In 2012, I was still working at the gold and silver retailer. And the night um, that Trace Mayer told me that I need to get into Bitcoin, and I, like you, was a little fiery in my in my youth. and, and made some Yeah, we all were, right? And uh, we were in Vegas, and uh, I went with uh, some colleagues to Club Excess at the top of Wind Hotel. And man, mm. this was... Uh, a big nightclub with uh, oxygen being pumped in and, and loud pop music. And it was huge. And I remember I stepped up onto uh, a ledge and to get a, to kind of assess the whole club to see what was going on and where I was in, in relation to the club, et cetera, where I'd go next. And uh, I step up onto the ledge. And next thing I know, I'm being carried out by two real big uh, burly security guards who kicked me out at that point. And uh, I was like, that's fine, but I'd like a refund. And uh, they were like, there's no such thing as a refund here. And I was like, no, I want a refund. Like I'd been there for like five minutes. And so at that point, I guess if you're asked to leave a nightclub, but you do not or any property in Vegas and you do not, then you're trespassing. So at that point I was trespassed and I was put in cuffs and taken to the back room, uh, handcuffed to like a metal bench, and then would begin my 27 hour stay in like Las Vegas uh, jail. I believe the same jail where OJ Simpson was staying at the time, but I didn't come across him for better or worse. And uh, now that evening in between the conference and going out, I purchased a domain, goldsilverbitcoin.com, basically because Trace had said, you got to get into this uh, thing. And really that was kind of a, a big turning point for me because I think it's, you know, it's a, uh, Gold silver Bitcoin, I think it's something that is real important, especially as we're here talking about unlimited QE, et cetera. And I set up that website with real with help of a really good friend um, who 
runs Genesis Coin at this point, which is Bitcoin ATM. His name's Evan Rose. He's done a really great job building that company virtually by himself. He was a great help in getting me online and having a, a working website. And um, you know, for my philosophy at that point for Gold Silver Bitcoin was just to do a lot of blogging and writing about the news. Um, as a writer in the space, really since the beginning, I've kind of viewed myself as a researcher. So I'm always really interested in researching what's going on in the space. And these days, a lot of the DeFi stuff, which I think has given me a unique perspective on the industry to kind of know what uh, people are interested in, you know, year by year. For instance, like 2015, I'd call like the uh, the year of the blockchain. We started talking about blockchain for the first time in 2015. Yeah. Or uh, 2017, obviously, this is the year of the ICO. Um, and, uh, always kind of having my kind of finger on the pulse of the industry and really interviewing as many people as possible and learning about what's going on. Let's go back to, um, to the history of, and the community of the Silk Road. How important was Silk Road to the early days of Bitcoin? What kind of like statistics, uh, do we have showing, um, the amount of transactions and data that happened over, you know, on Silk Road versus the whole entire Bitcoin blockchain. I mean, in the early years, Silk Road was, I mean, if you wanted to make a uh, like statistic of what most Bitcoins were being used to buy and sell, the Silk Road dominance would have been like through the roof. I don't know the exact, insane. I don't know the exact numbers, but I think the argument's been made over and over again that Bitcoin's early years was largely defined by the Silk Road and that it's later success was thanks to Silk Road because um, you could only use Bitcoin on the Silk Road. And um, from probably from the period of uh, 20, I guess 2011 to maybe 2012 at some point, yeah, the Silk Road is crazy. It's really not until 2013 when the Bitcoin price ran to over $1,000 where- yeah. The, that's when the mainstream media kind of got involved and started discussing it. And I think that that Silk Road dominance started to wane. And of course, um, that was the year in which Ross Ulbrich was detained in the San Francisco Public Library. Um, the, I believe, FBI agents, uh, maybe. Yeah. Uh, they, well, uh, it was a whole like cornucopia of, of you know, like a poo-poo platter of, of agents, I think. Oh, that of course. Same, that same with me. Yeah, it makes sense. I had, and it was interesting because Ross was on his computer and in order to distract him so that they could get the computer before he had a chance to turn it off, uh, they had two um, agents squabbling as like squabbling lovers. So that distracted Ross. And then they uh, took the laptop and he was apparently logged in or allegedly logged in or, or logged yeah. in as a DPR, Dread Pirate Roberts, which was his uh, pseudonym uh, while running that website. And... Uh, uh, so before that point, though, yeah, up until 2013, I think that Bitcoin was like exclusively a Silk Road game, and which means that it was yeah. largely a cannabis uh, play. Justin, um, until until Ross was was detained, no one knew his name was Ross. It was DPR, and it, interestingly enough, like unlike El Chapo or or Shorty or whatever, um, you don't see people calling Ross DPR. You don't see him being referenced as DPR a lot. Um, he's largely kept and remain known as Ross Albrecht. Um, largely is, I'm sure there's a lot of marketing involved in that. Um, but you think there are people that still believe that Ross is not DPR, Dread Pryor Roberts, the founder and administrator of Silk Road? Yeah, there are certainly people. And I mean, 
who knows how that account was managed. And I, and I believe the story was that while, um, so one of the version of the events goes that Ross founded the website and then sort of backed away from it. Um, that's one version I've heard. And, uh, you know, it's tough. It's tough to know exactly. Like, uh, I've seen the family kind of soften their language around that and really kind of push the, the amnesty or a lessening of the sentence, um, angle. But who's to say that like DPR was not like more than one person who's to say who had access to that account and how that was run. I'm not sure even the federal government knows that. And when you look at the double sentence compared to like El Chapo's single life sentence, may wonder like what at the end of the day fueled that court case and why the government was so harsh on Ross in comparison to, uh, you know, El Chapo. I'm here in San Diego and, you know, I think San Diego has got a real dark underbelly that nobody talks about. It's Tijuana, one of the, if not the most dangerous city in the world is 15 miles south of me. I can see it when I'm on top of my building and the devastation that has been waged on that city and really all of Mexico by criminal elements, by cartels essentially, who run the government there in many cases, if not by infiltration, by intimidation and violence. And to know that that has penetrated into certainly at least San Diego and elsewhere, you know, I think really is more deserving of one life sentence. But that's almost a given already. Like we know about that already. Um, it's been around. Yes. The, the war on drugs has been a, a tale told for how many decades already. And it's not, I feel like it's not going anywhere. Slowly cannabis is definitely uh, getting legalized and that is so important, but you're right. I mean, the economic social devastation in Mexico and how much we as a, as a as an American society, contribute to that is appalling, and you know um, I had a I had someone I've interviewed on this show before, and in fact um, I think the same gentleman was on the the old I don't know if you remember the old um, um, what was the old document docu- Rise and Rise of Bitcoin mm-hmm. uh, documentary. There was a guy, so this wasn't on the public version of it. But on the public version of it, there was a they interviewed a Silk Road uh, drug dealer and they blacked out his face. And um, on the extra footage, I vaguely remember this same guy kept going. And I don't know why this didn't make it onto the final cut. I believe there were a lot of like political reasons. And if you listen to why, you'll you'll understand. But essentially, this guy ended up going very deep, talking about how he's been a drug dealer for Many years, you know, running street corner people, uh, the same story that, you know, from movies and TV. Right. And he said that now because he's selling on Silk Road, he never takes his guns out anymore. He doesn't have his people anymore as people are shipping boxes in a warehouse instead of selling drugs on the street with guns. Now, I'm not a fan of any drugs except for cannabis, and I will never advocate for any of that. But I'm also a social economist and I like to study things. So it's an interesting like social study to look at that statement that he made. Do you think that's a one-off or do you think there were a lot of other Silk Road drug dealers that didn't have the time to be shooting up on the street now that they were selling on the internet? I agree with you. I think that the social kind of economic experiment value of something like that is invaluable and that when you especially like consider the degree to which this was a cannabis-dominated marketplace, it makes it perfect sense for it to be put online 
here in uh, San Diego and California, the dispensaries are cash-based businesses because they can't get bank accounts. So you've got a huge risk that they face day by day of getting robbed for that cash. So oftentimes they have to pay their workers in cash, which, which puts the workers at risk. And I mean, all of this in the name of really good tax revenue at the end of the day for states. So I think that you make a great point. And I think that especially from a social economic experimentation side of things, that that's something that we should all consider as perhaps having value as a society and something that perhaps we should let play out to examine, but certainly not to not allowing like, you know, cannabis is kind of like the hard stop there. Cause I really think that um, generally speaking, America's got a drug problem. In what way? I think pills first and foremost, people are addicted to pills. I mean, you can listen to uh, the, the new Eminem album. There's a song called never love again. And this is a real poignant um, take on pill addiction. And, you know, pills have taken some of our most beloved stars from Michael Jackson to Prince. And uh, that is what I mean by that. And I think that if you're able to have like a, um, like an online, online marketplace, which where legal products such as cannabis uh, were made available online, that it would, for instance, put some of these dispensaries at less of a risk for being robbed for their cash at this point, because the banks won't bank them. How do you actually live your life on crypto? How do you do it? I've been doing it since I first got started with Bitcoin back in, what, like 2011. But since 2016, I've been using the BitPay debit card to spend my Bitcoin on a day-to-day -day basis. And it's been such a great product that I've been using it for over three years. BitPay is now sponsoring Untold Stories, and they're going to be giving away free Visa debit cards to all my listeners. All you have to do is visit bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. It's such an easy card to use. You get the card in the mail, you download the BitPay app, you put Bitcoin on the app, and when you want to send Bitcoin from the app into your debit card, it only takes a few seconds and you can spend your Bitcoin anywhere credit cards are offered. It's really so easy. You almost wonder, like, why didn't this come out in 2011 when Bitcoin first launched? Well, it was very difficult to do. In fact, I actually tried to launch my own debit card, but I wasn't able to because the credit card companies were very reluctant to do it. But now BitPay launched their product and a lot of other companies have launched credit cards and debit cards using Bitcoin over the years. I still will only use the BitPay card. I'm very loyal to the brands I like um, and I hope you guys are too. The fees are very low. You can use it to withdraw cash at ATMs. You can use it all around the world with very, very low fees. A lot of companies have tacked on like super high fees. And I don't like that. So check it out. Bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. That's bitpay.com forward slash Charlie. You get a free card. You don't have to pay for it. Usually the card costs like 10 bucks or more. There's a commitment, but you don't have to do that here. It's a free card. There's literally no reason to not try it out. I've been using it for over three years. So check it out. And thanks for listening to Untold Stories. Over the years, I've learned a lot from crypto winters, a lot of the bull and bear markets, and there's a lot of things that I've learned. But one of the most important things that I've learned is that community is one of our strongest assets. It allows us to continue working together and talking to each other during the good times, the bad times, and hopefully not the ugly times. Over the past few months, I've been speaking with the Pepo team. These guys have spent years 
working with members of the crypto community and learning what we want in social sharing apps. And I'm really excited that Pepo is now one of the sponsors for Untold Stories. Even in the few weeks since they launched Pepo at DevCon, not that long ago, I've seen them make so many improvements like hashtag search based on feedback from people using the app and so many different features that combine the best parts of what we already love, that parts of Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, but it combines it in a perfect way with such a nice user experience and good security. It combines them so perfectly that it looks like, and it actually was built for the crypto community. You can download the app by going to pepo.com forward slash stories, and you can find me there at Charlie Shrem, the same as my Twitter handle. We are seeing that. Um, And I think that while Silk Road may not have had a direct, or maybe it did, but there's no like direct link, the concept of your medicine, whether that be legal or illegal, the concept of having your medicine being a peer-reviewed product, right? Like having reading reviews. Let me take a step back. You and I, we're probably similar age. We were born and raised um, here with the understanding that whatever the doctor tells you to do, you do. Like doctor says jump off the bridge, you jump off the bridge. Um, We don't know, and we never knew, and I still, we don't know the details, that many doctors um, are in fact paid to push certain medications over others. And we see that now with the opioid epidemic. The only reason there's an opioid opioid epidemic is that doctors and hospitals and salesmen and women were paid extravagant amounts of money to push um, these, you know, oxycodone as non, you know, as as this life-saving miracle drug that's non-addictive. You're right. We do have this stupid um, drug problem. So the concept of of Silk Road, right, of having drugs on the internet and then being able to peer review them as maybe this medication is not the best for me, maybe this one is better, right? Like that wasn't really done before Silk Road. And then you had Silk Road, for better or for worse, moving on. And then now you have the medical marijuana industry, at least I'm looking at the Florida one, and it's very it, it's very similar to Silk Road. I mean, you, you, you log in, you go to the website, you enter your patient ID, you could shop for products, you can read reviews, you can leave reviews, you can get specials, discounts, you can buy from certain dispensaries over other ones, they compete for your business, and then you get a delivery like the next day from a legal drug dealer. How weird is that? It's like very weird. Yeah, I think that perhaps one could argue that Silk Road really paved the path for something like this, um, at least a softer version thereof. And we're seeing... Uh, this is on the clear net, right? So you're, you're explaining, explaining something that's not even on um, the, on tour. It's on the clear net. Anyone can access that of all ages, probably. Yeah, I never heard that term clear net before. That's a great term. So, um, you know, I agree also that uh, when it comes to sort of, uh, you, I think the main discussion that we're having here really is like two life sentences. Yeah, it's crazy. I, I that's That's the reaction. Listen, if, if, if my reaction is that it's crazy, two life sentences, and I know nothing about the kid. Like, I really don't know much about it. I've, I've purposely kept, because I was on probation for many years, I couldn't comment publicly on, on the case. But I mean, I don't, who else has had two life sentences in history? I mean, have, have traitors, have spies have had that much, you know, societal damage. Um, but I think on the other side, Justin, um, could one... And like, I want to try to think a little bit out of the box here. Could one make the case that Ross's 
um, sentence was fair. Could could have you? What type of who 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 is making that case? Obviously, besides for the government, but who do you talk to, and what is their? I mean, what is their thoughts on that? You know, that's a. A lot of people have a lot of trouble understanding the Silk Road in the first place that are that are in the Bitcoin space. And uh, if I I look at uh, I have Karl Mark Force's resume in front of me. He sent it. He's the uh, one of the lead investigators on the Silk Road at that time. And he uh, this is his summary of work at the top of his resume. Agent who established and cultivated undercover relationship with Ross William Ulbricht, aka Dread Pirate Roberts, which led to his federal indictment for murder for hire. So I believe those charges never came to fruition and were dropped. And that while the family has softened its language about Ross's role over the years, this is something that they are extremely um, committed to dispelling that there was a murder for hire involved. Why, why did this guy email you? Why did this agent send you his CV? So he wrote me, he said, uh, Justin, let's see if I've got a, he said, Justin, I am actively looking for a partner in the Bitcoin arena to exploit the trend, tremendous profit potential before Bitcoin becomes mainstream. I propose that I take over the AML compliance section of your business and prepare financial statements and the general ledger. That's why, that's why he reached out to me. So he, uh, this was a, let's see, probably leading into, this is late um 2012 i guess early 2013 let's see i've got i've got the new york times article that i read uh came out on march 31st 2015 so this is 2014 and uh you know i think that he had wrapped up with the silk road investigation and he would ultimately be found guilty of laundering bitcoins away from the silk road and keeping them for himself he then made couple purchases from my website for gold. So he sent me Bitcoin uh, through BitPay probably at that time. And uh, I, I sent him gold. So he had been a customer. And uh, then he was actively looking to become a partner in a, in a crypto company. He ultimately became a chief compliance officer at CoinMKT. I'm not sure if they're around anymore. Um but uh, let's see here. Yeah, I'm not sure what position he took over at Coin MKT, but they ultimately worked with with him. And uh, Carl Mark Force also apparently contacted Mark Carpellis as well. Huh, that would have been funny. Yeah. So, and you know, there's there's a Carl Mark Force wanted to be the chief compliance officer at Mount Gox. That would have been a great story. Yeah, yeah, no kidding. And uh, you know, there is a connection there. Uh, um, Mark Carpellis and uh, Silk Road. Are you are you aware of like any sort of connections there? I know that I have like some faint tickle in my mind. We got to be careful. I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to not comment on that. Yeah, I've, on my own show. <laughs> Oddly enough. <laughs> yeah. So I I encourage uh, you can Google and, and <sighs> that's funny. Yeah. I encourage everyone to go down the Bitcoin conspiracy rabbit hole and learn of some of the zanier theories out there. Oh, they're so crazy theories, though. Um, hey, I want to jump forward really quick. Um, we're living in, in COVID times, COVID-19. Um, you're largely in the precious metal space, gold and silver. What the hell is going on? Like, what are people in the financial underbelly doing with precious metals and crypto? Are they actually buying precious metals? Are they actually buying crypto? Like, what are your buyers telling you? What is going on? There's always been a robust market from Bitcoin to gold and silver. 
And during times like this, I think it only becomes more pronounced. I really don't know what a, a lot of how what the makeup of these customers generally are, but uh, at times when Bitcoin increases in price, more people are exchanging Bitcoin for gold and silver. And really, this is the first uh, economic uncertainty Bitcoin's ever seen. I mean, it was released in 2009. The stock market had already collapsed. There was then, I believe, like the 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 ratings crisis in 2011, where there was threats that some banks that Moody's was going to like downgrade banks and even countries, and there was a concern that that would kind of snowball and and kind of take us from a great recession to potentially something worse. But instead, we saw a period of growth between, say, 2012 and 2019. And now all small businesses across the U.S., uh, at least in big states, uh, either are locked down or they're facing lockdown. Like People are out of jobs. I think everyone knows somebody that's now out of, out of jobs. So many of the small businesses had to lay people off right away because if they don't have income coming in, they got to lay people off. And I've always heard that small business is the engine of the United States. So the question then is like, what happens economically? I think that this panicked the market, especially when Donald Trump announced that nobody could come, no flights could come from Europe to the United States and the market sold off. I think we saw Bitcoin go down to like $3,800, although it has certainly rebounded and really looked like and smelled like a real world asset. And we saw the sell-off. And this is actually kind of before the reallocation period when people really start going from cash into new assets, potentially safe havens. But even then during the sell-off, we saw like incredible demand for gold and silver, even though silver went down to like $12.30, which... I mean, when I first entered the market in 2009, it was $9. Gold uh, fell down to like, what, pushing almost the $400 yeah. mark. And yeah, there was incredible demand. Silver dried up. Uh, the silver U.S. Mint ran out of silver. Eagles, this happens in times of great demand. They, It's not that they're out of raw material silver. They're just out of the coins that they've minted. Minted, yeah. And then... Uh, Gold's a different story, lots of gold. But then, you know, there's some interesting stuff that's also going on in the background, and I'm not sure how it'll play out for the silver market in particular. But the Royal Canadian Mint, which is one of the most trusted mints in the world, it shut down because of COVID-19, so they will not be producing for at least two weeks, potentially longer. And mines are also having to shut down across the country in order to protect their employees. So this is an entirely different dynamic than we saw in 2009 when production was never interrupted. But today, like we see that production is being interrupted in very real ways for the silver market, which a lot of people allege um, we got a, a tail wagging the dog situation in where the futures markets, a lot of people contend it's a game controlled by JP Morgan, command the price and... and, uh, and create the price of silver in the, in the CME and that the CME is not holding enough physical silver to um, kind of back these futures contracts. So we may see a like a squeeze on precious metals, whether it's gold and silver because of a lot of reasons mints can't produce, mines can't mine. Um, you won't see things like that with Bitcoin, though. We see now that there are institutional players in Bitcoin, like the six uh, futures exchange and the backed futures exchange. And backed isn't fully uh, backed by Bitcoin, from my understanding, although at first the reports were stipulating that they would be fully 100% backed. 
And Charlie, you know, I wonder if these institutional mechanisms that are being built around Bitcoin, like Bitcoin futures, can't be used to control the price of Bitcoin. Now, of course, those dynamics would play out completely different in the Bitcoin market, and I don't, nor do I think anyone knows how that will play out because Bitcoin's only a decade old, which is like a baby. Uh, gold's like 5,000 years old. So I wonder if these mechanisms can be used to control the price, which is why it's so important to have proof of keys in the gold and silver market. Everyone says you got to hold your own metals uh, yourself. And when you do that, it, your safe better be real good and bolted into the ground because uh, people oftentimes have a tendency of having their homes robbed and their safes that they bought at Home Depot or Costco, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, just kind of carried out in their entirety. And same thing in the Bitcoin market. It's going to be real important for us to hold our own Bitcoins. And I think that this will actually kind of like push an evolution in humanity to understand more intimately these computers and devices that we're on all of the time. And that's really like a, that's a societal good that Bitcoin is doing for everyone by pushing people to understand how to use these technologies and uh, in a secure manner. So it's not just financial literacy, it's technological literacy for the older generation. Mm -hmm. And I also wonder real quick, we I want to say about these futures markets. So this goes for gold, silver, as well as Bitcoin. Like, I'm not sure the people who are playing in these futures markets are the same people that are buying the physical, nor do I, or, or buying Bitcoin, like raw Bitcoin, uh, or, and taking control of keys. I, I think that if in the event of an, a squeeze, Charlie, while everyone says that these people are going to want physical silver, I think the people playing in physical markets would go straight to cash. They're not going to go into this physical commodity. I, I'm not sure that they believe in these. They're yeah. just looking to make money. Yeah. You're seeing a lot of people go to cash, um, especially in, in today's world. I wanted to ask you, because this is a, something that I'm not uh, super familiar with, and since you're a precious metal guy, you may have a better understanding. I always understood safe deposit boxes in banks as these places that are, yeah, they're not insured, but they're yours. They're legally yours. Um, I've read that in times of crisis, the government can go in and take everyone's safe deposit boxes, take all the precious metals. And in fact, it's it's happened on more than one occasion uh, around the world. Um, but now there's there's this also something called a private vault. And in fact, I was driving the other day uh, near where I live and there was a uh, a large jewelry store that advertised its services of having uh, a private vault. What is a private vault that people can 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 purchase or lease? It's just simply a private company that, you know, probably had a lot of money up front to secure a building. I mean, you got to take all sorts of things into consideration, like who's on the other side of your walls. And if somebody breaks into like the optometrist next door, can they then like, then like break the wall in between this private company that has safes in it and vaults and then steal everything. So in many cases, those, these private vaults have like thought that through and that they've set up a, a, a secure building and that includes private vaults and, and the security goes beyond the private vaults. And, uh, you know, there's one here locally in San Diego and they, um, sometimes sell bullion when they're able to, although when times get a little bit volatile, like today, they kind of shut that off, but they do have, um, gold and silver vaults and, and people's gold and silver being stored there. But like, 
we're living now right now in COVID-19 times. And is that an essential business? And if not, then how do you get your precious metals that are being kept at this private business if you're not allowed to go there? In Italy, like they are a little bit more, um, I think, strict at this point than we've seen here in the U.S. about people going outside. So I imagine that, it, like, let's say you find yourself in Lombardy and you've got precious metals in a private vault. Right now, I'm not sure you can access that. And I guess we're not sure when anyone would be able to access that. In the banks, it's the same story. Right now, they uh, are letting people in here in San Diego in the bank one person at a time. What happens if they don't let people in the banks at all out of concerns for something like coronavirus? So I think that like the concerns are a little bit even more nuanced than the government coming in and taking people's vaults. Perhaps it's like a question of access at all. But why would we have a bank run? Like realistically, people don't really use cash much anymore, at least in the States. So I'm not saying, I'm not thinking it would be a bank run. Uh, and I'm not thinking this would happen. I'm just saying that like right now, right. Um, in two weeks, our lives have been completely transformed. And, you know, the only small businesses open are like liquor stores and dispensaries and everything else has kind of been told to shut down, you know, unless you're Amazon or unless you're a Walmart or Target or Costco or one of these big box stores. And so like, I think the question is less like of there being a bank run and more of there just not being access out of concerns for people's safety or health. At this point, we haven't seen that yet. But like I said, I mean, I there's only in the banks here in San Diego, you know, you're only allowed to go one person in at a time. You're seeing that with like grocery stores, uh, my local coffee shop barricaded, you know, like the front door so you can only order from standing outside. Uh, it's the new world we live in, right? Like it's almost, we live in a world where you just can't be around or touch other people. Um, unless it's like your wife or whatever, your partner, your boyfriend, your, so it's like, yeah, you have a, now marriage has become a social contract that you're allowed to touch each other. So I think like the lesson in terms of like, uh, maybe storing our money is like diversity is key. So, you know, you can use a private vault, but maybe you shouldn't only use a private vault or maybe you should use more than one private vault, or maybe you should have, uh, a safety deposit box, a private vault, and some at home. And then with Bitcoin, I guess, like, why not keep some on an exchange? Why not keep some in a cold wallet? Why not diversify the way in which you store your um, Bitcoin? I agree. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, I was sitting around like in uh, March of 2015, and uh, the news broke on Zero Hedge, I believe, that the gentleman who had been courting me for uh, investment had... Uh, had uh, been arrested. And I actually did not know that he worked on uh, your case as well. And uh, at that point, interestingly, I I was a little, I've read the incorporation documents of my business and it essentially says that if I become aware of any illegal like activity that I must uh, report that. So I, I did this at my father's in law enforcement and he had uh, friends in the federal bureaus of investigation locally in San Diego. And I, contacted them and let them know that I had some some evidence that would be material to Mr. Force's case. And so I, I went down actually to the uh to the uh FBI building in San Diego. I had to park my car away from the building. I had to talk to the security guards who were approved to let me in. And uh the FBI building in San Diego is this big, beautiful building. But I didn't get to go into any of those beautiful parts. I was kind of kept into a side room. And I met uh, with um, the acquaintance of my father, an FBI agent and his partner. 
And uh, they, they escorted me into a back room and I kind of gave them the documents that I had uh, regarding forces uh, communications with me and, and particularly the transactions, which I assume were, were done with Bitcoins that were stolen from what would have been at that time, the federal government um, through the Silk Road. And um, I had a nice conversation with them. Uh, you know, they were quite funny. And at the time I was a little bit like, uh, I guess this was a serious like moment for me. And, uh, yeah. you know, they were asking me all sorts of questions about SEO and marketing and stuff. Cause they were saying that they needed help on that front. And at the time I didn't realize the humor in that, but they were talking about the, yeah. like, about the, the lack of, uh, the, the, the distrust amongst a great swath of population of, of kind of, uh, some of these agencies and, they're asking me for SEO advice to help uh, combat that. Interesting. Did they give you any like, did you get any feelings or thoughts of their reactions that Carl was one of their own and they weren't prosecuting like, you know, not, not one of their own? So, I mean, I guess these guys like simply were conduits. They were going to pass on the documents to um, the lead investigator in San Francisco at that time, I believe. And you know, they're, they were curious. They were mostly just curious. They were curious about Bitcoin. Uh, they asked questions about it. And you, I, the feeling that I got largely was that these are two men with families, with wives, you know, who, with their own sense of, of self, not like um, some sort of uh, like humanless yeah. figure, you know, that, yeah. that represents the institution and only the institution. So, I mean, it was a very friendly conversation and, and, um, they were cracking jokes, which I wish I had uh, picked up on at the time, but I was kind of more business. I was, I was there for business. How did, do we know how he actually stole the Bitcoin from the government that was seized from Silk Road? Do we know how he actually went about it? Yeah, I believe that he was getting um, those transactions sent to him by DPR. I think, okay, so like, I think that they were like um, communicating with, Silk Road elements, not only for the investigation, but for their own um, profit, essentially. And I believe these Bitcoins were sent to them um, amid the mess. You know that there was all sorts of stuff where like um, Char or, uh, Ross was being like said that unless uh, that they had their customer list, the Silk Road customer list, and that they were going to leak it and all this stuff. And I wonder if not they were using kind of, they were like trying to blackmail DPR by saying, oh, we've got access to all this information by virtue. They didn't tell DP, or, um, Ross or DPR this, um, so DPR. And uh, that they had access to all this customer information probably through their capacity as uh, investigators. They didn't tell DPR that. And that unless they were sent Bitcoins, that they would leak this stuff. So I, I think there was a lot of that stuff going on. Oh wow! So they were blackmailing him. I, you know, don't quote me on this, but like, yeah, like, yeah, of course. Like in the so my reading of it was that like they, because how else would they steal these bitcoins? They they didn't have access to the servers at that point. So I think that they were just communicating and probably gaslighting, which means like um, kind of confusing DPR and other Silk Road employees into who they were and what their real like business was, um, and re misrepresenting themselves as probably like criminals while they were supposed to be investigating, uh, the website and that that's how they came across these Bitcoins. That's a crazy, crazy story. How that all 
kind of came together. And it's also crazy that you were, you know, also very involved in, in the crypto space. You, you would think that Carl, if he was smart, he wouldn't use another crypto company to launder his Bitcoin. Well, I guess how would you then, you know, oh, I don't know, whatever goes on the brains of, of someone like I that. I guess he but probably thought I mean, he'd just, never get caught. Yeah. Well, most people don't. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, that, uh, yeah, that's, a, and that's largely part of the reason why I, um, you know, kind of brought this forth. Cause I was like, look, I mean, this stuff's probably going to come out anyway in the wash yeah, at some like, point. So I'd rather just like get ahead of this. But, um, so I spoke with the lawyer of Carl to kind of get some more, um, insight into the him as a person. And, and he told me, and this is from his lawyer that quote, like I found him to be a very remorseful individual that was struggling with his own issues. And it was very sad to me because you can tell that he had been in a number of positions in his career that caused a great deal of stress. I wish they had paid more attention to him. You just, you don't just forget these individuals when you put them in stressful situations because you never know how it will affect them psychologically. Um, and that is essentially what the, uh, the lawyer said, other than he doesn't see the major implications of Karl Mark Force's case for Ross Ulbricht, that when the government builds their cases, they tend to have a lot of evidence nobody saw. I guess you can say that, but at the same time, uh, it definitely begs the question of, you know, if he wasn't being having integrity himself in this situation, then how could we trust that there was complete integrity in, in Ross's case? And he had the most, you know, the best due diligence. And if there's even a basic tenement of a of a reason of, of a doubt that his case was fair at the outset um a, you know an independent investigator should look at his case and i know that even like ross's family have offered to potentially pay for that just to have an independent person look at a, the case and say to the judge like there's some kind of weird shit that went on here yeah again i'll i'll do this forever that when you compare it to like el chapo's sentence the U.S. the taxpayer should be really suspect about how justice is being wielded in these cases. Because at the end of the day, it's it's you and me paying our taxes. That's paying the salaries of these investigators and law enforcement officials. Mm-hmm. Yep. Crazy, crazy world we live in, and crazy days we live in. Um, how can our listeners follow you? Follow your podcast, your writings. Well, I'm on the. I have a Forbes.com contributor account at at slash sites slash Justin O'Connell. And you can find me at goldsilverbitcoin.com. Just email me at justin at goldsilverbitcoin.com. Justin, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Charlie, it was my pleasure. Thank you. I hope I can come on your show. Yes, absolutely. Anytime. <laughs> Let's do it. Talk to you Excellent. later. Stay safe. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com. Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of Blockworks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offord. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Schrem. You can follow me on Twitter at Charlie Shrem to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.